The Neuroscience of Anxiety, written by Scott Young, November 2019. Few things are as unpleasant as anxiety. With the explosion of interest in mindfulness meditation and books like The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, I'm hardly alone in wanting to worry less. Recently, I read Anxious by NYU neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux. Ledoux is an expert on a lot of the neural processes behind fear and anxiety, and this book offers fascinating insights into the underlying mechanisms that make us miserable. At the same time, however, Anxious isn't an easy read. Many sections involve deciphering neural circuit diagrams, trying to keep track of countless acronyms for minuscule brain regions. This essay is my attempt to summarize some of the main insights of the book to help my own understanding of anxiety and for anyone else who wants to worry less. Fear and Consciousness A huge chunk of the opening of the book is devoted to what, at first glance, seems to be a rather abstract problem. Do the parts of the brain that are active when we observe fearful behavior really make us feel fear? If you've followed any pop sci articles on neuroscience, you've probably heard that the amygdala, an almond-shaped chunk of brain beneath the cortex, is the brain's fear center. Scare someone, or a mouse in a laboratory, and the amygdala gets activated. This has led to a wave of reporting that center our feelings of fear inside this little knob of brain tissue. And this is unfortunate in Ledoux's estimation, because it's not at all clear that signals processed by the amygdala are conscious at all. Instead, Ledoux prefers the term survival circuit, since while it's clear that the amygdala is involved in responding to threats, it's not clear that activity here directly generates conscious feelings. Fear, as an experience, likely happens elsewhere, possibly in higher cortical areas of the brain that work with attention, thinking, imagining our futures, and remembering our pasts. So put another way, if a threat falls in the amygdala, but there's no one there to feel it, does it actually make you fear? To Ledoux, anxiety you don't consciously experience isn't anxiety at all. So side note here, fear, anxiety, and worrying have different technical meanings. Fear is the feeling associated with imminent danger. Anxiety is the feeling of uncertain threat. Worrying is anxious and repetitive thinking. The adaptive unconscious and fear. So this division between non-conscious survival circuitry and conscious experience is reflected in more than just anxiety. In the book, Strangers to Ourselves, psychologist Timothy Wilson argues that much of our mental operation exists outside of conscious thought. The idea of an unconscious mind, though, isn't new, of course. Sigmund Freud famously argued that our unconscious minds were a surreal dreamscape of repressed desires about genital jealousy and wanting to romance our mothers. This new picture of an unconscious, what Wilson calls the adaptive unconscious, is much more mundane. The adaptive unconscious manages the business of living, often guiding our behavior without our awareness. What we experience of our mental processing may not just be the tip of the iceberg, it may be merely a snowflake resting atop that tip. 
A classic demonstration of the adaptive unconscious are priming experiments. If you flash an image and then quickly flash a kind of masking stimulus, subjects cannot consciously report what they saw. And you can tell that they can't consciously report it because when they are asked to guess about what it was, they do no better than chance. Nonetheless, if that image is of a frightening face, unconscious threat circuits are mildly activated. Although you might not be able to consciously notice any difference, behavioral responses such as muscular movements in the face can be measured. Experiments such as these suggest that a lot of sophisticated mental processing not only happens beneath our everyday awareness, it is completely inaccessible to our conscious mind. Where do feelings of anxiety come from? So if threat circuitry isn't directly conscious, then how does it impact our experience of anxiety, which very much is conscious? In this case, it's likely that while threat circuitry may not result in conscious experiences itself, it may trigger other mental processes which do cause us to worry. One way this has been suggested is through bodily feedback. You experience some fearful stimulus, and your amygdala and related areas react quickly and increase your heart rate, let's say. You feel your heart rate beating faster, and so your mind interprets this as, I'm afraid. While the bodily feedback loop is a popular theory, Ledoux doubts it can be the main or total explanation. This feedback is probably just too slow for it to be the main pathway by which threat circuitry turns into conscious feelings. Instead, it might be that the amygdala triggers patterns in higher cortical areas which we can consciously experience as fear. In this case, the feelings we experience as anxiety are a downstream effect of the threat circuitry that we don't experience directly. Still, the coupling between threat circuitry and feelings of fear is not perfect. As already discussed, it's possible to activate the threat circuitry mildly without creating any conscious awareness at all, although behavioral responses are still observable. Conversely, it might also be possible to feel anxious even if there aren't any threat response circuits firing at all. The overall feeling of dread and constant worrying that characterizes a lot of anxiety may not need a trigger from threat circuits in order to become active. It may be a purely higher-order mental phenomenon. As a result, interventions that work by clamping down on threat circuits may not help much in these cases. Threat Circuits and Anti-Anxiety Drugs This bifurcation of systems, a non-conscious threat response system, as well as consciously experienced fear, may have implications on our ability to treat anxiety. For instance, Ledoux notes that drug companies haven't always had great successes at discovering anti-anxiety medications. When something does help with anxiety, it's often discovered by accident rather than by design. The separation of threat circuitry from conscious fear may partly explain why. Drugs are often selected for their ability to reduce fear-like behavior in laboratory animals. But in doing so, however, they may be operating mostly on non-conscious rather than conscious circuitry. This may not help as much when the goal is to treat conscious feelings of anxiety, not just non-conscious responses to threats. Exposure therapy. So this perspective might also have implications for improving therapy as well. Exposure therapy is a fairly successful therapy for combating anxiety. It works by exposing a patient to the object of their fears. When they experience fear, but nothing bad follows, the fear will get a little less next time. 
Ledoux notes that in around 70% of patients will get some benefit from exposure therapy. Success isn't perfect, however. Spontaneous recovery, where a previously extinguished fear returns back seemingly without reason, can occur. Stress and trauma can also trigger remissions, where experiencing something stressful can also re-trigger your same avoidance and anxious patterns that happened, even those that are not related to the experience that you had of stress or trauma. So one reason for this seems to be that the memory for threat and the memory for safety are actually two distinct neural circuits. When you initially learn the threat, and then later extinguish the threat circuit through exposure, this doesn't work by erasing the original memory, but by creating a second memory designed to suppress the first one. It's as if, instead of erasing the fearful picture, you've merely painted it over with a fresh coat of paint, one that might get scratched off later by accident. Interestingly, this memory for safety that suppresses the original threat response may be more context-sensitive than the threat circuit itself. If you learn not to panic at social gatherings while with your friend, you may still panic when that person isn't there to accompany you. Reducing this context sensitivity requires many different exposures in varying situations, otherwise the experience may not transfer. So side note, context specificity shows up in another context, learning. In ultra-learning, my book, I reviewed research showing that the things that we learn tend to be more specific and context-dependent than we expect them to be. This shows up in so many different contexts that it suggests a fairly general principle of how our brains work rather than some deficit of a particular technique, therapy, or educational system. Why we get stuck in anxiety. Anxiety can be self-reinforcing. So say you're terrified of public speaking. You have an upcoming speech and you start to feel worse and worse about it. Finally, you come up with an excuse to avoid speaking. But now you feel better. Whatever you were worried about that might happen can't actually happen. This actually creates a pattern of negative reinforcement. By removing something unpleasant, your anxious feelings, you reinforce the behavior that created it. Since what you fear never actually happened, this pattern to avoid what you fear gets stronger each time you feel anxious. In nature, this pattern probably works fairly well. A rabbit that almost gets eaten while near a certain watering hole may never go back there. This may result in a little thirst, but it's better than being eaten by a crocodile. The problem is that the avoidance strategy can work too well. It may be that the situation you're afraid of is actually safe. By avoiding it, however, you never experience the disconfirming evidence that you need to know that you don't need to be afraid of it. In some cases, avoidance itself becomes worse than the thing you're afraid of as you take increasingly costly steps to avoid situations that might be scary. Exposure therapy works to disable this feedback loop. Expose yourself to the thing you're afraid of, and when nothing devastating happens, you diminish the fear response next time. Repeat this, and eventually the fear you experience will hopefully be mild enough so that it no longer interferes with your life. While this is easiest to understand with phobias, there's probably a similar avoidant reinforcement mechanism underlying a lot more general anxiety and worrying. An imagined, fearful situation arises, and then you worry obsessively to try to find some possible escape. Since most catastrophic worries never actually happen, you've successfully avoided it, and so the worrying behavior gets reinforced. Extinguishing fears and changing beliefs. 
Modern exposure therapy, however, is usually more than just direct exposure. It usually also involves cognitive therapy, which involves talking about your fears. The hope here is that to make explicit some of your beliefs, you can start to question them. Our glossophobe might worry that if he bombs on stage, his boss will fire him. Now, this might not be realistic, but unless it's made explicit, it's very difficult to evaluate this thought pattern objectively. According to Ledoux, these two different aspects work on the two different systems that contribute to feelings of anxiety. Exposure targets the threat response circuitry, a largely non-conscious response. Only changing someone's beliefs, but leaving the threat circuitry untouched, may leave someone so that they're still paralyzed with anxiety, even though they know it's completely irrational. For instance, you may know that standing in a glass elevator is totally safe, but be petrified looking down over the edge. Similarly, if you only extinguish the threat circuit, higher cognitive systems may reactivate it later. You can hear about a plane crash, and all of a sudden all your worries about flying resurface in ways you can't control. Implications of Anxious, the book, and further thoughts. The existence of parallel non-conscious and conscious states. And indeed, treating the two as somewhat separate systems that both contribute to behavior is an interesting insight that I glean from the book. So in my own life, I often find myself talking through my problems, either by myself or with others. And sometimes this process can help, writing down my plans, worries, goals, and problems in a journal, or discussing it with a friend, can often lead to new insights or reveal flaws in my thinking that lead to breakthroughs. But in other cases, overthinking is exactly my problem. Thinking leads to more thinking which goes nowhere. Particularly in cases when I'm worried, this thinking can become compulsive and difficult to control. This book suggests that neglecting the non-conscious processing may be a major weakness here. Since many of the mental processes happen outside of awareness, they can't really be fixed by thinking about them more. Alternative approaches, such as exposure, may be more effective in these cases because they work on the problem more directly. This book also echoes another neuroscience book I reviewed earlier, The Hungry Brain. In that book, sophisticated circuits control how much we eat, which can explain why dieting is so hard. Like anxiety, these processes happen without our awareness and yet seem to exert incredible sway over our lives. In some ways, however, the existence of these unseen processes make things more difficult. How do you make decisions when many of your actions are decided by processes which you have no access to? How do you affect change in your life when the causes of your behavior are often invisible? How do you know yourself when so much of yourself is just not open to introspection? These questions don't have easy answers, but I hope by exploring these, we might uncover new tools to worry less. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, please consider rating my show. It helps other people find it. For more episodes like this, please visit my website at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. Thank you.